0: episode 204 of the All the Book Show, recorded at the David A. Howe Public Library. We talk book news, author news, literary news, and sometimes uh, people who worked on getting us to the moon. Absolutely. I'm excited
1: about this interview today. Uh, we're going to be talking to Mr. David Dvorkin. Now, you might remember David from our podcast episode that we did with him last year, episode 149, Take 5 with David Dvorkin. There we focused on his fiction work, particularly some of his Star Trek novels mm-hmm. that I'm a fan of. Uh, but today... We're going to be talking about uh, his time at NASA. In the interview last time, he was like, "Oh, of course, I had worked at NASA," and just sort of kept going. Yeah. And we were like, "Wait, what?" Yeah, Nick did a
0: spit take. Yeah, I was
1: like, get that, get stop the. Presses. So now, summer do reading one, program, yeah. universal stories, all space themed. And I thought, well, let's see if David DeWokin will yeah. join us once again. And he did. He was very generous with his time. We had a great interview. That's coming up a little bit later. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm Nick Gunning. I'm Eric Bickles. That's right. All
0: right. Oh, did I? Yeah, I guess we didn't say that. No,
1: I think we kind of jumped right in talking about the interview, but uh, they know who they are. They're, they're good people. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Should we jump right into Bookmark?
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, what have you been reading? What have I been
1: reading? But what haven't I been reading, right? No, I I have. Mm. I've read a few things. Okay. I'm going to tell you about the graphic novels that I read first. I read Alpha Flight. Volume 2 by Greg Pak and Fred Van Lente. If you haven't listened to our Fred Van Lente interview, just pop back a few episodes, soundcloud.com slash all the books. only a few episodes ago. That's right. Anywhere you find your podcasts, uh, look for the All the Books show, and you can see our interview with the author, Fred Van Lente. We talk a mm-hmm. little bit about this Alpha Flight and many other uh, works of his, particularly Spider-Man and Iron Man. Yeah. So I read that. That kind of closes out the Alpha Flight. This was an eight-issue maxi series. Uh, pretty good. They're
0: Canadian superheroes. This Maxi, maxi series is the force. I don't get it. Doesn't he say Maxi Big is the force? I Jar-jar have no Banks. idea what you're talking about. Jar Jar Binks. Oh, okay. Oh, Maxi Biggs I, is the force. You know what? I can't quote the Star Wars prequels like you can. <laughs> uh, a
1: point of pride, I might add. I read Rise of the Batman, which is the first uh, Detective Comics. Clayface
0: doesn't look like a Batman. I know. Issue of uh, Detective Comics uh, mm-hmm. post-rebirth. Which Robin are we looking at here on the cover? Tim Drake. Oh, He's Robin again? He's Red Robin. Okay.
1: Yeah. Anyway, this is a pretty good. It's a Batman team book, and it actually works really well. I sort of avoided this. I just mm-hmm. had not wanted to read it, but I've been reading through on my DC Universe app and got here, and I was very pleasantly surprised. It's a good showcase for Batwoman, so if you're following oh, yeah. all the Comic-Con news and all that, Batwoman's getting her own show. If you're not familiar with the character, I think that this actually is a better intro than you might find in some of her solo titles. So, again, this is... Uh, Detective Comics Rise of the Batman yeah, which we do have in our collection. I can't remember where she first appeared. I know did 52,
0: she 52 the, the the not the new 52 the the series 52. Oh okay. Did she did she play heavily in the uh C- cowl when batman was dead battle for the Cow, really. or was that just the movie she was i mean she was there but i wouldn't say she played yeah. heavily okay um she's kind of
1: based on a silver age character kathy kane who was batwoman with the red mask yeah that character didn't go anywhere so this is a, re- <laughs> a redux of that
0: yeah. but you have only yourself to blame kathy kane
1: that's right uh i read and this there's the story behind this one so just bear with me because uh-huh. i read michael jan friedman's novelization of the movie batman and robin what's wrong with you i know what is wrong with i know you? No, it's all right. uh uh, a few a few episodes back You may recall That I did a deep dive Into Battlefield Earth He sure did The book by L. Ron Hubbard And then uh, shared it all with us Yes I did uh, Because I was doing a, a guest spot On Eric's podcast Outside of the library Called Three Nice Things That's Where true. we watch a bad movie yep. And we try to come up With three nice things about it So I read Battlefield Earth For that yeah. Eric asked me to join him again For the Batman and Robin
0: episode was, And mm-hmm. I thought Well I've set a precedent He, he did this Yeah both so, times He's done this to himself Nobody's like Hey would you mind Reading this book He's like You know what I'm gonna do do? so i experienced this <laughs> twice so i read the
1: novelization and i'm a fan of novelizations sure and so like i sped through this pretty quickly and i don't want to give much away you're going to have to listen to three nice <laughs> things but i will just tell you this michael jan friedman wrote a novelization of a much better film than the one that we watched oh so, okay
0: yeah on the book i thought akiva goldsman was the author but no, no they, they wrote the screenplay reasons. so anyway I read interesting. Then but I you read... But yeah. you said the foreword
1: is interesting. Yes. The foreword... Oh, I wish I had it with me, but he has some quote that's basically like... You know this this is a this is a great exciting story and I know the movies just could be just as great and just as exciting as this script was. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> Michael Batman and Jan. Robin is gonna blow you away. Somewhere George Clooney is a single tear, yeah. dropping. Christian um, Bale, who then, no need. Then uh-huh. I read When We Landed on the Moon by today's guest David Devorkin. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned this in the interview, but it is available in paperback. Our copy is coming here to the library. You can also pick it up on ebook, and the ebook was pretty cheap at the moment. So go and check that out anywhere you get your ebooks. books um, It's an excellent uh, short memoir of his time, NASA. And we're going to get into this in the mm-hmm. interview, but... Um, just just for my quick, quick review of it, you may have read some of the some of the bigger uh, novels or not novels, the the bigger memoirs and things of that time. This is a nice, brief memoir that really focuses on um, sort of the personal aspect of right. it. He does an excellent job of, you know I, I I read that and I finished it, and I felt like I had more of a sense mm-hmm. of what it would be like to just sort of, you know, go and punch your clock at at NASA and be right. there working. Like it was a really. In that way, I feel like it was a really good window into that time. Mm-hmm. So, if you're if you're a, a space nut uh, like many of you are, and have read a lot of the other books uh-huh. about the Apollo missions and that sort of thing, I do still recommend you check this out because it, it it gives you it gives you a slice of something different, which I think is challenging to do in an era and a, a subject that's been so heavily covered. But mm-hmm. he does manage to give you something that I don't think you've had before. So, I encourage you to check that out. I am currently reading. Uh, Being John Lennon by Ray Connolly. This is the most recent Lennon biography. I've read he's one. He's still writing <laughs> biography, not autobiography. Oh yeah, so he has a, he has somebody like listening yeah. while he okay. Yeah, he's I dictating. Re- I read Philip Norman's a while back. Philip Norman. If you if you read any of Beatle books, you know that he's a, a bit of a, a divisive figure. Oh, um, basically because of his well known, well documented hatred of Paul McCartney. <laughs> so it just kind of like reading the Lennon book that he wrote. I really liked it. I thought it was a good
0: I thought it was a good book, but the role that McCartney plays in that is like <laughs> yeah. you know, just a very not a Where good Where does Paul McCartney get off making popular music that yeah. everybody enjoys? Yeah, you're not that you're not that far off. So, <laughs> um, I I'm I'm you know, probably about halfway through this and I'm really
1: enjoying it so far. And that's being John Lennon by Ray Connolly. Ooh. It's and, called
0: A Restless Life. Oh yeah, that's right. A restless Bottom, life is yeah. the subtitle.
1: Yep, and it is good. It's good. Again, this is another thing that there's been a million books written on this, but mm-hmm. this author uh, is a journalist who was friendly with John. Uh, was actually scheduled mm-hmm. to interview him the day John was assassinated. It was like a getting on the plane to Yikes. go and meet him. So um, a lot of uh, a lot of firsthand knowledge there, and just a uh, you know a good writer as a journalist. Um, this is not a book, but I finished the first Portal game, so I just wanted to oh, tell everybody 20 years late that yeah. I'll that's alright. I, fl- I played that game. Yeah. Uh, what about you? Uh, you had kind of an active. I played yeah, Portal. An, uh, you a while ago, yeah. Have you Portal?
0: Yeah. Portal one, Portal one and two, one and two. Yeah. Half Life. Okay. Haven't played two yet. Half Life games. Okay. okay. So, uh, but you had a pretty portrait. busy weekend. You went to a concert. I did. Oh, tell I did. Tell us, tell us a little bit I went about to the concert. video games live yep. again. Did I mention this before? Last time I went to video games live, I can't remember. Back in when we had like a snowstorm, that was terrible. Okay. Uh, but anyways, yes, I went to video games live in Buffalo, New York. Uh, not two moons ago okay uh it was good it, let me so, ask you this how does this relate if at all to
1: an upcoming uh, couple of episodes we're gonna do
0: oh hey this does relate because does it? okay because i'm never quite sure how in a couple all. of episodes we're gonna talk about music we listen to while we read yeah so start thinking about what you listen to while you read yes if and, anything at all remember you can get that to us at all the book show at
1: gmail um twitter. all the book show on twitter
0: uh facebook, facebook david a how public library yeah. any
1: way you want but we do want some listener feedback yeah. but sorry and
0: uh we're we're talking we we've also interviewed uh one of the uh the heads of overclocked remix which is a massive video game music site for it all uh but yeah so video games live is a ongoing concert tours that uh plays orchestral versions of your favorite video game music so i always enjoy hearing uh, their metal gear solid rendition which gets me very excited. This I time don't, I don't know that music. M- yeah, uh, I could sing it to you. Not now.
2: Ah. A different time. Okay.
0: They're they're usually with the orchestra that they're that's in I town. See. So this was with the Buffalo Philharmonic. Oh, that's nice. Uh, and the local choir, and it was it was a very good show. Nice. When I was in college, the uh-huh. uh,
1: the college. Uh, Orchestra, Philharmonic, whatever you say, mm. would always do an annual Star Trek concert. Uh, yeah, super great. Yeah, that's all.
0: Like of the movies, of the shows. Yeah, the the, the yeah, both a little nice.
1: Both. They would do the themes, but they would also do like the Wrath of Khan type
0: mm. and stuff. So that was that was your jam. Have I
1: mentioned that I'm a, I, I like the Star Trek?
0: Yes, I have. Okay. Yeah, all right, cool, yes. cool. cool, 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 cool. Um, I saw the movie yesterday. Oh. Uh, i feel like i should have your mileage may vary thank you sorry about that pause i was trying to think of how to how to say your if you're a beatles fan your mileage will probably get you further along than uh this guy i was ready for it to end about 20 minutes before it ended uh but there you go i don't know if uh i want to hold your hand would really blow up the internet in 2019 like it does in this movie but (laughs) who knows yeah my wife really liked it it's it, it has a weird balance between this whole, like, the Beatles didn't exist, but one guy remembers them concept yeah, right. and just being like a romantic comedy dramedy kind of thing. All right. I finished The Loneliest Girl in the Universe by Lauren James. Oh, yes. Uh, why, Nick? Our next episode, episode 205, is going to feature an exclusive interview with Lauren James. And we're going to talk a little bit about the book, The Loneliest Girl in the Universe. Yeah. Uh, I liked it. I definitely liked it more at the w- the first half. Uh, it becomes kind of a different book. I can't really say anything without spoilers. It is hard to spoilers. talk about, yeah. Uh, even on Goodreads. This was the first time I've ever clicked the spoiler warning yeah. button on Goodreads. Yeah. But uh, I'm more of a fan of the beginning stuff where we're just kind of focusing on uh, like would, human I nature. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. But I, I was actually really entertained yeah. the whole way through. Oh, I should say that even though I said that, I read about 250 pages straight. Wow. In one sitting. Like, I just woke up at 9 o'clock. I was like, let's see how far I can get in this. Well, was that was it night, for me. Yeah. I, I guess we shouldn't talk about this yeah. too much. But, it, you know, it is a young adult novel, and it's mm-hmm. geared for that audience. So, with
1: it's that in mind, I was... Yeah, it is very compelling. And, like, there were things that, as an adult, I probably yeah. would have not...
0: I was less interested in focusing mm-hmm. on, but... The cover and for for the its title...
1: Target, it's very good.
0: Yeah, the cover and the title don't really... Uh, sh- I don't know, present itself as the page-turner that it becomes. Absolutely. So. I agree. But we should stop talking about it. All right. We're going to do a whole episode. Uh, I finished The Sheriff of Babylon, Volume 2, which means now I have finished The Sheriff of Babylon. You see how I'm saying it now? I do. Yeah. You yeah, want me to say, yeah. Well, you were just saying sheriff before. Sheriff of Babylon. It's not a word. So now I'm saying sheriff, sheriff of Babylon. As
1: in there's a new sheriff in this town. This is by
0: Tom King and Mitch Jarrods. And I could probably double-check if uh, Mitch Jarrods drew for uh mr miracle the tom king book that won the eisner award but i'm not going to do it anyway wow. uh the sheriff of babylon it's uh, pronounced sheriff <laughs> 12 issue story about uh a specific story set in the middle east it's it's good it's definitely did well, you say mitch Gerards? yeah okay yep you're right he did mr miracle oh there you go yes uh so they teamed back up for that yes. but yeah it's 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 good. It's kind of a brutal look at the whole situation. Uh, it's interesting. This was a vertigo title. I think this might have been like the last big vertigo title. Mm. Last big hit for them. Rip. Yeah, rip. So I read this book called The Private Eye by Brian K. Vaughn. Okay. Uh, and Marcos Martin, I believe, is the illustrator. This it's weird. So if you've seen this book anywhere, it's it's one of those like short but long print uh book styles. Okay. Like a, an old Calvin and Hobbes or Garfield yeah. collection because they released... Garfield the Cat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They released this on uh, online first and then printed it. So basically, this is in the future where in pretty close to our time now, the cloud... The digital cloud just burst and everybody's information of everything was just out there. And it like ruined lives and society and everything. And so the internet is outlawed. There is no internet. And now reporters are basically the police. Oh, okay. And everybody's identity is kept secret. Everybody wears like masks out in public and hides their identity and has multiple identities. And you only take your mask off when you're with like a trusted person. Kind of like the Bruce Willis film, Surrogates. Oh, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Based on a graphic novel. So we follow uh, the main character who's a private eye and tries to find out what people are doing in their secret lives. Um, Of bees? No, not secret lives of bees. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So So, it's, it's. It's actually really interesting. There's a lot of uh, stuff in here that's really like ingenious. I really liked it. You should check out The Private Eye. Private Eye. It's it's one and done. It's a standalone thing, but the art is gorgeous. Would you recommend reading that and listening to the Hollow Note song Private Eyes? I don't know that Tonally, one. Tonally, do you think the, Oh, okay. Is that like the Metal Gear Solid theme? No, it's different. It, Metal Gear goes,
2: mm-hmm. "Oh." No, no, it's a good
1: hand claps. Watching you. Like that kind of thing. Oh, okay. No, different.
0: Playing any good video games at the moment? Uh I have had no time. I've had two different uh incarnations of family visit the past That's true. the past you know, 2 weeks. That's true. As have I. Yeah. It's been an exceptionally busy. Yep. Family a, heavy yeah. couple of weeks. Uh, Eaten my my wife's family is here, but I also had to take some time out to go see Nick and Annie. This we've just been so busy here at work. We have. So Well, it's a summer reading program. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, we were just the fair. We were on Monday. Yeah. Uh We've been doing our summer feeding program. Yes. And there was also something really... Be- we just had our book fair. Yeah, that's true. Uh, this past weekend here in
1: Wellsville uh, is was Balloon Rally Saturday where yeah. the big balloon launches happened. Huge street fair. We had the farmer's market with the SBCA. Mm-hmm. Opening day of our book sale. And yeah. let me tell you what. Yeah. I, I think this is the busiest we've ever been. During the book at sale? Book sale. I it was really It was real so. busy. I really yeah, think Nick,
0: so. Yeah, Nick had to leave... It's just a bundle of cash. It's, it's true. He did not feel comfortable I didn't. The how cash many sales was just yeah. like yeah. I, it was. So. It was insane. Yeah. So it has been a really busy
1: week because uh, we're at the peak of the summer reading program. Yeah. So we've got our uh, the Pikachu of the Tuesdays on program. the terrace every Tuesday. We yeah, have music that's been on the lawn too. every Thursday evening. We've got programs all the time. Uh, our theme this month is a universe of stories, mm-hmm. which has been a lot of fun for us. Uh, you know, sometimes. I don't really like the themes that we get. There's been a couple that are more challenging than others. The but I construction think, one. Yeah. <laughs> but I think this space theme has really opened up a lot of doors. Um, space doors. Yeah, space doors. Uh, <laughs> airlocks,
0: if you will. Yeah. Oh, you don't want to open those up. <laughs> oh, you don't? Not if you're on the ship. I have to make a call. Oh,
1: <laughs> George Clooney, don't. No, really, though. It, ha- it has opened a lot of doors for us. I think the, the kinds of programming we've been able mm-hmm. to do has has been a lot different than the things we've done in the last uh, couple of years. Yeah. Um, the amount of like hands-on stuff we've been able to do. I think it's been mm-hmm. great. So yes, we have been incredibly busy. No. And this week, we are very fortunate to have uh, someone who was there, who was there when it happened, uh, David Devorkin's back with us today. Now, I first became aware of David Dvorkin's writing about 15 years ago wow. when I read The Trellisane Confrontation, one of his three Star Trek books. Mm. Uh, he also wrote The Captain's Honor, which is a next generation novel, and oh. Time Trap, which is the original series. All a lot of fun, all, all so classic Star I feel like Star I've heard Trek. you talk about Time Trap.
0: Yeah, right. I yeah. don't
1: see. That's another one. Where I really feel like I can't talk about it without oh, giving okay. it away. But <laughs> we do have these in our collection, so you can check it out. Outside of that, um, if you if you check out his website Dworkin.com, you can see that he has just a huge list of both fiction and nonfiction works. Yeah. Uh, short story collection Earthmen and Other Aliens is is really fun. A lot of good stories in there. Uh, his most recent thing, when we landed on the moon, a memoir chronicles the time he spent working at NASA from 1967 to 1971, which is prime time. I mean, that's moon landing. What, that is prime time at yeah. NASA. So here we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, mm-hmm. uh, and we were able to sit down with David Dvorak and discuss some of his time t- here in great detail. And here's yeah. some here's some of the stories that you just you're just not going to find anywhere else. So yeah. do we get a little uh, Richard Nixon kicking? Got, got a little a little talking Nixon, a yeah. little bit of inside scoop, uh, things you're not going to hear on the news. So <laughs> uh, so take it away. Let's do it. offer uh, Well, uh, Eric and I are joined by David Dvorkin. David, thanks for joining us once again. You're welcome. <laughs> Last year when we talked, we were talking to you primarily about your fiction work, some of your Star Trek writing and all that. And in the course of the interview, you had just sort of casually mentioned that that was during a time when you were working at NASA. And we just kind of kept going because we had our, our questions and things. But... Uh, As soon as we got off the interview, we were like, oh, we have to talk to him about that. (laughs) So I'm glad that you were willing to do this.
3: Yeah, well, I'm always glad to talk about it. Um, As I mentioned to you, my only real problem is uh, how long ago it was. Oh, sure. (laughs) And, and, you know, uh, when I was writing, I wrote the little book that that, um, you just read, just saw. Um, I was surprised by how many things I remembered, but also by how many I didn't. It's really (laughs) disturbing in a way.
1: Yeah, so the the book is called when we landed on the moon and it's out uh, coming out in paperback you can get it as an ebook right now is that right
3: it's in both now
1: okay great all right um well let's just dive right in so as soon as you mentioned it i got my copy and read through it and i found it really fascinating i thought i thought you did a great job of um pulling out just little everyday facts that i don't think you get often when when this time period of nasa is covered you know it tends to focus on you know the the biggest you know the flashiest newsworthy elements of it and i think that um what i liked about yours was that you did cover those things but you also just gave a a real sense of what the day-to-day was like you know as as somebody who was there
3: well of course it focused most of the news all the news at the time focused on the astronauts and what they were absolutely yeah and then uh, what people saw and heard on their tv screens was The few people at NASA who were doing all the talking, you know, (laughs) Chris Chris Croft and people like that who were doing the announcements and giving the interviews and a few people of that sort. But there were more than 400,000 of us off in the background in our rooms reading printouts, giant stacks of printouts and dealing with giant stacks of punch cards because that's how we had to do everything and, you know, grinding away at it. And that, that, as I said in the book, that was the big secret for... uh, for NASA, for for doing it at all, that they broke this immense task down into these uh, a multitude of tiny little ones mm-hmm. that were handled by one or two or three people at a time.
1: Yeah. See, and that's just. Uh, I mean, I was reading that, and like, I was terrified. So I can't even imagine, you know, being like the one guy who's who has this little chunk of it, and you know, everything's sort of reliant on that. It it just illustrates just how many moving pieces it took, you know.
3: Oh right! And hardware, software, um, people on ships, people on—and not just Americans. People are on in radar stations all over the world. We had Australians and Brits and other people uh, manning giant radar stations that were tracking the vehicles. And there's some kind of contract arrangement with the U.S. government and, uh, and people of all sorts. Not to mention janitors and security guards and sure. types and secretaries and people like them of that sort. And I was I was terrified when I first got there because. Um, I didn't know what any of it meant my my educational background had not prepared me at all and i i was how, just...
1: how could it i mean it was such a new unique thing
3: it was new and unique although if i had gone to an engineering school maybe i would have been somewhat more prepared i don't know but uh, yeah computers i had never even seen a computer i just vaguely knew what they were i mm-hmm. uh, had to learn programming and and how to do computer runs right away and and the a whole new area of mathematics that my background had not, had not prepared me for i had As I said in the book, I had all kinds of romanticized ideas about what it would be like. I thought it would be like those 1950s uh, TV shows and, and fiction movies, and it was nothing like that at all
1: well let's let's go right back to the beginning because I just I love the wording of this telegram so it's 1967 you do an interview with NASA and you get a telegram that says you have been selected to participate in man's greatest adventure the conquest of space you know it's just I mean talk about a 1950s flourish I mean right there that feels <laughs> right out of a classic sci-fi but can it you describe the pages. feeling of that
3: you know it went on for pages I um, I, I still have it my I, my wife says that reminded me that we uh, I had an awful lot of NASA stuff in the basement we had a basement flood many years ago that oh. destroyed some of it so some of that may be lost I don't know I should try to dig through stuff and see if it's still there because it, it was it was a classic yeah it was great I didn't expect anything like that I expected something much shorter yeah you know?
1: well I mean you can just even from that the wording that you've shared I mean you can see the pride that they had in it and the excitement that was felt but for you you know it's cuz you were you were what 22 23 at this point
3: Yes, right, right.
1: Okay. I mean, what was that like to get that telegram?
3: Oh, it was tremendously exciting, you know, because uh, I had been a space freak kid all my life. <laughs> I wanted to be a spaceman when I was young. I wanted to buy myself a, a, a spacesuit. With sa- I, when I was a kid, I was saving my, up my money, I remember, to to buy myself a spacesuit, although um, in the end my parents took money and used it for something practical. But. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I, I had all these dreams of me. I thought, you know, this was going to, as I said, it was going to be like the the movies and the TV shows. I was just so thrilled and excited. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And and then I, when I signed up, I started getting all kinds of um, glossy brochures from apartment complexes in the area, showing wow. showing me what a wonderful life I would have on the sea, you know, on the sea coast. And,
1: oh sure. Well, I'm I I'm imagine it was a huge boom for that area when I mean, you're talking, you know, four hundred plus, four hundred thousand plus people coming there. I mean. The infrastructure, well, even yeah, that, would require you know,
3: out around the world. So, yeah, uh, there were, there were probably I'd imagine total about fifteen 000 to twenty thousand actually there. But it was farmland. This was um, at a sure. time when this was out in the nowhere. It was midway between Houston and Galveston, and there was nothing for twenty-five miles to the north until you hit Houston. There was nothing twenty-five <laughs> miles to the south. There was nothing until you hit Galveston. Nothing,
1: days, nothing except a dry heat, right? <laughs> wet, very very wet heat. Oh really? Oh, that's worse.
3: <laughs> On the coast, yeah, horribly humid and uh, lots of insects and and farmland and and um and fishing villages. A lot of fishing villages and the oil industry was there, but it was all very small and isolated and and uh, insular. Um, they were not happy, as, well, as I learned later in the game. In the game, um, the locals are not happy to see all these high-paid young techies from all over oh. the country. We were Texans, we were all people from all over flooding in with our Strange ways and strange ideas, and and youth, and and lots of spending money. You know, it was very disruptive to the area.
1: Yeah, oh, that makes sense. So even even with fifteen to twenty thousand people coming in, and that's a that's a big increase in population all of a sudden. You know,
3: very sudden. Yes, right. Right.
1: So how did you how did you even come to interview? Like, what did you were there postings for this, or how did that
3: happen? I wish I could remember. Uh, <laughs> I remember when I was in graduate school, I was interviewed with a lot of different uh, government agencies, including the National Security Agency and people like that, NASA, uh, people who were looking for uh, students with the technical background. Okay. And I don't. I they must have had sign-up sheets. I I just don't remember anymore. Okay.
1: Well, this this part cracked me up in the book. Um, that that this whole NASA adventure of yours, you know, almost ended before it even started.
3: Oh, well, they um, it turned out that uh, NASA had overhired, they had gotten too enthusiastic <laughs> and hired, sent out offers uh, for too, too many people, and they realized too late they were over budget. So, this and I had been hired, gotten the offer, and accepted it um, toward the end of the school year, probably May, April, May, something like that. Uh, and during that summer, they tried to contact some of these people who, such as including me, the, the most recent hires and beg them to withdraw their acceptance. They, they couldn't <laughs> withdraw their side of it, but they wanted us to withdraw our side. And fortunately for me, I'd gone off with some friends on a camping trip in Canada, and I was uh, living in a sleeping bag in a Volkswagen van. Um, no cell phones, no emails. Sure, and, yeah. And no phones in some of the places we were out in the wilderness. It was a wonderful trip, and then I got back and uh, prepared and went down, moved down to Houston. And when I got there, I was told, by a guy one of the people who was there actually had been in graduate school with me at indiana university oh okay and uh, so they since he was he knew me they asked him to try to contact me and begged beg me to withdraw but he told <laughs> me about it when i got there but since since they hadn't been able to contact me and i had shown up as as agreed then you know they <laughs> i was in
1: yeah wow well that was a well-timed camping trip
3: Yes
1: it was <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about this a little bit at the top and, and you you address it quite often in the memoir but um, the the stress the stress of this job um, can you talk a little bit about what your what your title was and what your specific area of focus was and and how that how that mix of you know exhilaration and like great burden uh, affected your time there uh,
3: I remember sleeplessness more than exhilaration actually okay. <laughs> My my job was um, uh, analyzing the navigation during the rendezvous phase when the lunar module ascended from the moon to uh, at the end of the the mission to rendezvous with the command module, which had remained in orbit around the moon. Uh, Only the command module was able to return to Earth. The lunar module didn't have that capability. So the two men who were on the moon had to get back inside the command module and then jettison the lunar module and they would return to Earth. So uh, the rendezvous was critical for their survival. Otherwise, they'd be left behind. They had to get back into the command module. Um, and to accomplish this rendezvous, the rendezvous was, was complicated. They couldn't, even, they couldn't see each other until the very last few minutes. I mean, there were these two tiny little spacecraft in, in the blackness, you know. Um, so they, had to, they, contact, they locked onto each other with radar. Each one of them had a radar dish. They locked onto each other, and then the readings were fed into the onboard computer and uh, backed up by some computers on Earth. We'd go through all the, the equations to, to calculate the, the maneuvers so that they could uh, end up together and my job was to it was error analysis called was to um, calculate how far off they were likely to be uh, not the actual maneuvers themselves but how accurate those maneuvers would be right so as long as they as long as they were expected to be accurate to within a few feet and a few feet per second in, in speed that was acceptable if they were had been off by a thousand miles you know or, or potentially off by a thousand miles that would be a real danger sign um so it was it was all very it was computer runs it was all computer runs and it was all abstract in a way until the mission actually happened but the problem was that at, at the beginning when I started there um, there were two months what they call two month centers and it was two months between launches of the Apollo missions which meant that the work had to be done very quickly because uh, there was a chain of different groups doing work and feeding the data to the next group. I couldn't do mine and my work until I got a bunch of data from a whole bunch of other people. Okay. And then I had to do my work quickly and pass my numbers on to other people who would then use them in their planning. So everyone was under tremendous stress to to meet the deadlines because the launches would not be delayed. Um, and uh, if anyone upstream from me uh, was slow, that put, that put and I had less time to do my work and, and if I had been slow, that would have put more pressure on the people downstream from me, and so on. So the time pressure was was enormous. You you couldn't just do it when you felt like it. Basically, it had to be done by a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then you had to deal with um, the very big old slow computers that sometimes didn't do their job. And you know, things card punch uh, punch cards got mangled in the in the machine, and you had to repunch all your cards and fight with other engineers for the limited number of key punch machines we had available. You know, and then get all your printout and all that. So, just just the mechanics of it, It, yeah, time-consuming and could be made it even more stressful.
1: Well, absolutely, because, I mean, as you're describing it, you have the stress of your own work, you know, making sure that you're right, making sure your your figures all match up. But then you're also, you know, in the middle of what's essentially a domino effect. You know, you're saying if, if right. a guy a few steps ahead of you screwed up or was too slow, it would just kind of throw everybody else off. So, I mean, you have your own work to stress about and the effect you have on everybody else. So, yeah, I mean, that's, it's stressful. Yeah. And then there
3: were some, some missions where I mentioned Apollo 9, but they actually happened with them. A couple of other missions, where the numbers we got were were disturbingly high. The error, possible errors, really meant that someone upstream would have to redo things, or have to redo the hardware, or re, redo some work in order to um, see if they could improve their numbers, so that we could then get better numbers to try again, uh, in hopes that you know our numbers would then be better. So um, mm-hmm. sometimes everything had to go back again a few steps.
1: So you talked a little bit as well about um, some time you spent in the mission operations control room doing what was essentially a monitor duty, listening listening to the chatter, listening to what's going on up there, seeing some of the images. And what's interesting to me about that is, you know, here here we are fifty plus years later, and you know, we've we've all seen these classic images and you know, we've heard the we've heard and seen the bits that were deemed, you know, interesting or exciting for the T V viewing audience. So, um I wanna know a little bit what it was like to I mean, A, be seeing it totally unfiltered, seeing everything happening and seeing it first, you know.
3: Oh, that was that was the best part of it. Uh, that was Apollo 15. That was uh, the last mission that I worked on, and um, uh, that was the only one as, that I was in the mission control room on. And my uh, my group, um, we didn't we didn't actually participate in the actual operation mechanics of the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were there in case something went wrong, we would have to be consulted. So we were just there for a shift, um, watching watching the monitors and. With the headphones on, in case something happened, and they would contact us. But uh, in my case, uh, well, and nothing did go wrong, so that meant that I was there for the night shift, just just uh, just watching and waiting, and and, sure. and watching the monitor. And as I said in the book, it just happened that my shift, my night shift, uh, coincided with a lot of the um, the EVAs, the extravehicular activity, that mm-hmm. the astronauts on the on the surface, and they had the little rover. That was the first one, the first mission to use that. Uh, four-wheeled rover uh, vehicle so they could go around much greater distances. Uh, so I, there was nothing for me to do, really, but, uh, well, I could have tried to read a book or, or something, but uh, this is much more interesting. Oh, yeah. I, I was watching watching the live feed, listening to the, the chatter, um, and, as I, as I said, watching the, uh, the medical channel to see their vital signs, which was really fascinating, watching the, the astronauts' vital signs while they did various things. and A lot of it was, you know, pretty pretty tedious work for them I'm sure And sure. it's interesting where they would talk about like, you know, taking a rock sample. what about that one over there and that looks interesting I think that's this, they had been trained in given a, a lot of training in geology basically they were they were test pilots who had been trained uh, intensively in geology so they would know what they were looking for the alternative would be to send up real geologists real scientists but then you'd have to train them to do the kind of yeah. stuff that test pilots could do and they probably would probably be beyond them uh, so NASA decided this made more sense to use test pilots so they they were well trained and they they would look at the rocks and try to identify different things and see if it was of interest and and uh, but, you know that wasn't terribly interesting to listen to but but it was interesting to know that this was actually on the moon and they were surrounded by a vacuum and yeah one thing I did mention uh, in the book Dave Scott uh, the record fighter <laughs> who would like to drive to the, to the room the moon buggy uh, into small craters, so they would <laughs> bounce way up in the air. He got a kick out of that. He uh, he also seemed to like, I got the impression listening to the dialogue be, uh, between the two astronauts that he was deliberately falling. He fell a lot on the moon in mm. Apollo 15 because the spacesuits that were wearing were almost like giant balloons and right. he'd fall, bounce back up uh, to some distance and land on his feet. And uh, the first few times it happened, it was. They told him to be careful, and then it kept on happening, and, and it was clear that he was doing it for fun, which is just <laughs> amazing to me, because what if, what would have happened if he had punctured his suit? Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I guess that's the mentality of the astronaut versus the desk jockey. I
1: guess, yeah. Well, if you didn't bring up the, the reckless driving on the moon, I was going to ask you about that, because that, that really cracked me up in the book where you're, <laughs> where you're listening to... Uh, James Irwin being like, oh, that one looks big, Dave, Dave, Dave. You know, and, uh,
3: <laughs> I don't think the guy talked about that on the evening news. <laughs> no, probably not. not I hear it at all. That's yeah. oh, just so funny. I love how you
1: describe either either dead silence afterward or just grumbling. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the memoir was was these little bits that you were able to, able to put in that were just kind of in everyday life. You, you talked a little bit about. Um, what it was like when you're all down in this area off the clock? Can you talk a little bit about that? Just is life in that area when you when you weren't uh, doing your super stressful job?
3: Well, yes. Um, I emphasized in the book how young almost everyone was. I mean, I was I was one of the younger ones there in my early twenties, but not the very youngest. And uh, uh, the rest of the engineers tend to be in the mid to late twenties, uh, and management was in the lower management was thirties, upper management was in their forties. So Everyone was young, and and you know, it was a, this high-stress environment. Um, lots and lots of single people, uh, thousands and thousands of single young people, distressed. <laughs> you know, the inevitable, uh, the inevitable, uh, blowing off steam. One place I mentioned was the um, Ellington Air Force Base Officers Club. Right. Ellington Air Force Base is fairly nearby, and NASA maintained uh, kept the uh, the astronauts T thirty eight jet trainer trainer jets there, that they could fly around any time. They also had an officers club and we were all given memberships in the officers club. So we, we could go there on Friday nights and get really cheap beer and free shrimp and uh, and you know, hook up it was a big hook up place, meat market with AC astronauts. I won't mention the name, but he's one one you hear often in the news that you know, you could observe him making the rounds there and trying to pick up girls. <laughs> uh, it well, it's, it's pretty
1: good bragging rights, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's
3: easier for an astronaut than for you know, an aerospace engineer, yeah. What do you do? radar <laughs> error? Right, right. Point. As <laughs> opposed <laughs> to if I'm about to walk on the moon.
1: You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it's not fair, that's an unfair advantage. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. And then I also talked about the, um, the splashdown parties, which is the, this amazing Orgy—it was nothing you expect to see from these starchy people with ties on, you know, suits and all that. um, at at the end of the mission, when when this capsule, uh, command module, splashed down into the ocean, then it became the Navy's responsibility to recover them. Okay, uh, and bring them home. And so, the people at NASA really had nothing more to do. That was the end. There was no more we could do anyway. Right. So we were all relieved from duty, and everyone just poured out of the space center, kind of shut down for a while. We went across uh, NASA Road, NASA Boulevard, this big highway that ran in front of the Space Center, and the other side were a whole bunch of hotels and all the contract, the aerospace contractors would have, stopped, would have it all stocked up in preparation with lots of free booze and food, but mostly booze. So thousands and thousands of people, um, male and female, mostly young, but not always, a lot of them middle-aged and married, would be there just drinking themselves crazy and falling into the swimming pools and disappearing into the you know, into the hotel uh, <laughs> to blow off steam. This would go on all night long, and then the next morning everyone was back, presumably with hangovers, but not showing it. You know, looking all starchy again.
1: Yeah, I'm quite sure Walter Cronkite never said that on the news. Oh, he never mentioned that. Really. No, I don't, I don't recall. Uh, so you were, there, you were there, what you said, 1967 to 1971, right? That's right. And how... How does your I mean what what's your morale like? Because I imagine going in in '67, you know, you're riding high, everything's everything's mm-hmm. big and exciting, and then as as you coast toward the end of that, I mean, could you sense that there was a there was a bit of a pullback in, in the ideas of exploration and that that you know just that that bold mission that JFK had sort of laid out. I mean, was that palpable at the time?
3: Oh, it, it very much was, and it was it was the factor in my leaving. I mean, we we didn't like we hated the climate, but um, most of all, even more to me, the, I, did, I thought the future was, I didn't have a future there. I, they were already starting to have uh, risk reduction in force, which is a government term for layoff. <laughs> um, and I thought there were many more coming. There were big budget cuts coming. Um, there was no follow-on already. It had been decreed there would be no follow-on to Apollo, uh, no, at least no, no manned exploration beyond Earth orbit. Uh, originally, of course, uh, the whole idea was that Apollo would just be laying the groundwork. Right, We'd have bases on the moon, and then we'd be aiming at Mars and, and so on. But um, it was Richard Nixon who, as I remember, who basically said, no, the next thing is some sort of Earth orbital uh, mission, which, which evolved into the space shuttle. But, but at that time, there wasn't even a plan for a space station. So the Space shuttle didn't have anywhere to go to. It would go into orbit and then come back down. That would be the end of it. Um, and there was no to be no more Apollo. And, and there was they were stretching. They cancelled the last two missions. Originally, I think there was supposed to be a, an 18 and 19, uh, but it ended with Apollo 17. Um, and and they were stretching out the time. Is there two months between missions? It was four months or however long. Um, and everything was just wind. A sense of winding down. It all this, all the excitement and enthusiasm was just. Winding down, not even in, enthusiastically like a splashdown party, or like air being let out of a the balloon. Um, there was money pouring into unmanned exploration, and one of the big ones was the Viking Mars lander. And I, I was able to get a job. Well, I had a <laughs> leads on a job here in Denver at that time, and we we both liked Colorado a lot. And i have been to Denver on business for NASA a few times, uh, and, and really liked it. So it seemed. <laughs> With much regret, it seemed like the a, a time to, to leave. And um, I didn't, I can't say that I went to the Viking project with the same kind of naive enthusiasm it was a, that I had with Apollo because because it wasn't mad, you know, it wasn't exciting, right. it, was, it was good stuff and they did, it was a great project and they were very successful, but it just wasn't emotionally stirring.
1: So do you think, I mean, what's your perspective as an eyewitness to all this? I mean, do you think it was just a, a matter of you know, changing in, you know, political ideologies and, and a sense that, well, we did it, you know, we went to the moon, we're done. I mean, do you think that was it? Or, or what was it that really put the brakes on everything?
3: I don't know. At the time, I felt very bitterly that it, it was a shiny, bright object and the public and liked it for a while and then lost interest and got interested in other shiny objects. Mm. Of course, the Vietnam War was probably a factor too you know sure. a, a big one and and the budget problems related to that if, if not for that who knows maybe uh, maybe the money wouldn't have seen that seemed that important uh, to the public uh, I, I really don't know um, <clears throat> I guess before we did it it was an amazing thing but once we had landed once then then everyone got bored oh we're, we're landing on the moon again big deal so, yeah uh, the sort of uh, incremental exploration adding Adding new things like the rover just just didn't really do the job emotionally for most people. Mm-hmm.
1: As as you reminisce about this and as you sat down to write this memoir, is there is there a certain is there a certain situation or event uh, from your time there that, that that always sort of draws you back as something that you maybe feel the most proud of or, or the or the most most memorable for you to have been a part of?
3: Probably Apollo Eight, even though it was a it was a stunt, um, because it was. Unlike all the other stuff that had been so carefully planned and so also meticulous, Apollo 8 was was done quickly and on the fly, and everyone, no one really knew how to, what to do or, or if it would work, and we had to we had to do all this work very quickly and intensely for days and days on end, and it worked amazingly well. Uh, that to me that does stand out, and of course they got that amazing wonderful photograph and oh yes. T- this whole idea of human beings being in orbit around the moon was somehow, in some ways, even more fantastic and amazing than, than landing on the moon.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, you mentioned the photograph, and I, I like that story as well. So that was that was a photograph taken by the astronauts from orbit.
3: Oh, uh, yeah, well, they, they took a, a few pictures. as they were co- One of the orbits were coming around the moon, and they hadn't even planned it, and, and they saw this beautiful, giant Earth rising, above them, as they, as they orbited, it was, it appeared to rise up above the, the, lunar horizon, the rise in the sky, and one of the astronauts, they hadn't really expected this or, I mean, forewarned, so one of the astronauts grabbed one of the big, powerful color cameras they had and managed to load the film in time and took a, a bunch, of, a few pictures, but there's one of them in particular that became famous, it's called Earth rise and, you know, you see it all the time online, um, and, and, um, and it came to sort of epitomize the, the whole mission. Mm-hmm. A pretty, very stunning, beautiful picture uh, shows the moon below and the, and the Earth against the black sky. Um, NASA printed up, and the story I tell in the book that you're referring to is that mm-hmm. uh, NASA printed up a, a quite a large number of copies, planning mm-hmm. uh, high-quality glossy copies, uh, very big, um, showing, uh, planning to give them out to congressmen and other influential people, so they could hang that on their wall and maybe be influenced to get more money to NASA mm-hmm. and then someone pointed out after they would all been printed someone pointed out the the print was mirror image you know <laughs> the, the negative and put in back to front or something like that so fortunately instead of throwing them away they, they sent out the word somehow I don't remember how we didn't have email but the word got out that they were giving these things away to the first first come first third bases so a bunch of us raced we were in the same building fortunately as, as that office the PR office I mean, we raced down there and were able to get our hands on this. So I I still have that mirror image, copy of, of the Earthrise. It's a very beautiful picture. I love looking at it.
1: Well, it sounds like a pretty good movie prize to me. <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> yeah, that was my prize for all those days without sleep, 24 yeah. hours. Yeah.
1: It's a pretty good souvenir.
3: Yes, it is. <laughs> well, I do have others. I have a little medallion that's supposed to have um, a bit of metal from one of the, uh, the space cars, I, oh. I don't know which one, they melted it down and, and minted a whole bunch of metals for us and so we have a, a tiny fraction of metal in each one. <laughs> oh wow, well,
1: that'd be great. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with us. Um, for our listeners, if you haven't read the book, go out and find it. You can check out a copy here at the library as soon as we get our paperback copy in and it's available pretty much any place where you can get eBooks, uh, When We Landed on the Moon by David Dvorkin. So hope you check that out. And David, uh, where's the best place for people to find you online, find your works and other things?
3: Uh, my website, which is my Dvorkin.com, my name, dvorkin.com. com, And that is all my my books, my now 29 books, including this one uh, with descriptions and links for buying them and, and so on.
1: Wonderful. Well, again, I want to thank you so much for uh, sharing your memories with us. I think um, this it's perfect for our summer theme, which is a universe of stories. We're doing a lot of uh, space-centric programming. So this was really, really excellent for us and and perfect timing with the 50-year anniversary and everything. So we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Oh, thank you. And we're back. Thanks again to David Dvorkin for taking the time with us. As he Mm -hmm. mentioned, his website's dvorkin.com. Has links to all of his writings there. You can find them there. You can uh, check out quite a few of them right here from our library. Uh, I want to say thanks again to David for taking the time to talk to us. We really enjoyed it. Um, It's... uh, I don't know. It was exciting for me to just kind of... That's just your one away from that level of history. You know what I mean? To be able to talk to him and hear his experiences doing these things that we've all... We just know... We just know like Neil Armstrong and, and the moon landing and NASA and the Apollo missions. Like those are just things that are, you just always know them. They're mm-hmm. just ingrained in your mind. And you sort of like take that for granted, I think, or at least I do, you know, to think about um, just what, what an accomplishment and what an experience that was. So to hear David's personal stories of that and be able to ask him questions and give feedback on what that was like, I think
0: was, was really great. So I hope that you enjoyed yeah. it as well. Um, but let's talk library news, man. Right. I got a question, though. You do? You do the the moon level in the d- old DuckTales? Yes, I did. Yep. Yeah. yeah. The old DuckTales NES game. Yeah. We, we, so we all also got to we go all, Yeah, little we've little all experienced as a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, of course, those are the same. <laughs> uh, what do you have coming up, library-wise? Jeez Louise. Um, kids hang out on Tuesdays, teen night on Wednesdays. We're doing the summer feeding program until, I believe, August 8th. Mm-hmm. So we've got another three weeks of that. So um, that's
1: free meals for kids starting at eleven thirty. Eleven
0: thirty to twelve thirty p.m. Monday through Thursday. Yeah. yeah. I tell you what, on some of those hotter days, those juice boxes look so good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're the next movie we're showing is going to be August second, and that's going to be five feet apart. But those teens who are love, but they have they're sick and they can't be five feet. Oh yes. To, in, to get they got to stay five feet apart. Yeah. So, uh, and then yeah, don't and do we have we have a a space program coming, not the space program. We do. On Friday,
1: July 26th, former NASA consultant Kevin Manning Mm -hmm. is going to present on the beauty and harmony of the universe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So first he'll do a presentation with uh, slides and different things, and then everybody's actually going to go out on the back terrace with a special high-powered telescope and be able to see some of the things that uh, Kevin Manning's pointing out. So yes, hope you can join us for that. We have Other than that, we have a whole slew of movies coming up. We've Mm -hmm. got our YA for Adult book club, where we're going to be focusing on The Loneliest Girl in the Universe by Lauren James. 5.30 on the 25th of july that's a thursday Mm. right after that the around the world book club is reading Mm -hmm. the house on mango street by Mm -hmm. Sandro cisneros which is going to be held over at the creative arts center yeah so hope you can join us for any of those all right well our thanks again to today's special guest david devorkin the new memoirs when we landed on the moon available anywhere you can find books and ebooks we'll have the paperback here just as soon as our copy comes hot off the presses uh we'll see you next week with special guest lauren james Yay. yay